The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you, carrying a jar of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. The disciples then went off, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. While they were eating, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed for many. Amen, I say to you, I shall not drink again the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Gospel of the Lord. In the year 1263, there was a Eucharistic miracle that happened in Italy. And some of you might have even gotten to see this, this miracle or the remnants of it when you've been to Italy before in Orvieto, not that far outside of Rome. There was a priest, a German priest from Prague, and he was struggling with doubts about the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. He just really couldn't believe, after, after seven years of priesthood, considered a pious and holy priest, he just had struggled believing that that bread and wine truly turn into the body and blood of Christ. And he really struggled with that belief. And he struggled with doing the duties of a priest with that doubt inside of his mind and his heart. And he goes on pilgrimage to Rome, which was not, not around the corner, right? You know, like nearly 200 miles away, right? He goes and he walks all the way and does this pilgrimage to Rome on the way. And so as he goes there, he prays at the tomb of St. Peter, and he's asking God for a miracle. He's asking God for that miracle, and I think all of us know that situation, that in that moment, as you ask the question, you're like, please, lightning, strike me, Lord, <laughs> you know? And if it doesn't happen, then sometimes you sort of walk away with your hopes dashed a little bit, and that, that's kind of what it was like for this priest. So he began his journey back to his parish, and on his way back, he's walking through the town of Bolsena, Italy. And when he's walking through the town, a, a young boy notices him and runs up to him and says, Father, will you celebrate Mass for us tomorrow? We haven't had Mass in a while. And my mother would love it if you would celebrate Mass for us. And so he's already kind of struggling with, gosh, I'm already struggling with this disbelief and that I have to go and celebrate Mass for these, these people. But he said, you know, he felt like it was his duty. So he said, yes, I will celebrate the Mass for you tomorrow. Remember, this is 1263, so... The Mass is in Latin, too. He probably could speak Italian, which was common for the day for those priests. But so he goes and he celebrates this Mass for them tomorrow with all these doubts clouding in his mind and in his heart. And then at the consecration of the Eucharist, and you have to remember in the Latin Mass, he would have been standing at everybody, standing like this, facing 
our Lord at the tabernacle. And then at the elevation of the host, which you hold way above your head so the people can see it, the host begins to bleed, begins to bleed and right down the center of the host and pours down onto the corporal for all of the people who were there that day to see it. You know, they saw it happen as he held it up above his head. And he just basically panics. <laughs> He's like, what, what do I do? Like, what in the world? I mean, and I thought to myself, I was like, what in the world would I would do if that happened? I would panic too. And so he kind of panics and at first kind of tries to hide the host. And then thinking about continuing on, he can't continue on. And he turns around to the people folding up the host in the corporal, which is the, the cloth laid down on the, on the altar. He says, I have to go find the Holy Father. And so he goes to Orvieto, where the Holy Father, the, the Pope Urban IV, was residing at that time. And he confesses. First he confesses, you know, Holy Father, I doubted the Eucharist. And this is what happened. The host began to bleed during the consecration when I barely started say, uttering the words of consecration. And he was just like, you know, you know here's, here's the host. What do, I, what do I do? And it was at that moment that they were already thinking about pondering creating a feast, a specific feast for the body and blood of Christ, for the Eucharist itself. And Pope Urban sends out two of his representatives to examine this case. And as they interview different people one-on-one, -on -one, they all say, that's exactly what happened, Father. As soon as he held up the host in there, it just began to bleed. And then in a panic, he, he ran out of the church and said he was going to, go, going to go find you. And after this happens, and they kind of corroborate what everybody had witnessed, they also have the blood-stained corporal as well. And so Urban IV takes this as a sign that this is the time for us to institute this new feast in the church. And the person that he charges with the task to create this liturgy, why we'd have that beautiful sequence that Catherine just sang for us, is St. Thomas Aquinas himself was the one in charge of doing the liturgical setting for this Mass. It's amazing, because when you go to the town of Orvieto, not only do you see that bloodstained corporal in a reliquary up on the wall, but you also see the cross that St. Thomas Aquinas prayed before in another church not too far away. And what does he ask at that point? He hears the voice of the Lord saying to him, you know, he says, Thomas, you have written well of me. What do you ask of me? And Thomas has the answer that I hope every single one of us would say. He says, only you, Lord. Only you. And then it said he, was, he glimpsed heaven at that moment. And he never wrote anything again. The most prolific doctor of the church who gave us the Summa Theologia and all these different writings with just one glimpse of heaven after the Lord himself saying that you've written well of me couldn't bear to write another thing because nothing he had written was, was even comparable to the glory that, that he saw in that brief moment of the Lord revealing an aspect of heaven to him. Two amazing miracles, really, right there in that moment. So one of the things that's so important for us to realize, remember, 1263. 1263 is around 300 years before the Protestant Reformation ever happened. One of the reasons that this is so important for us to realize is that at this point in the history of the church, Everybody believes in the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. That's the consistent teaching of the church, and you hear it extremely early on. You hear it here 
in the mid-first century in the Didache, which is basically the teaching of the 12 apostles. It's a catechetical document from the mid-first century of the church. And one of the most important things it says in that document, it says, but let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also, the Lord has said, give not that which is holy to the dogs. It moves on to Ignatius of Antioch in 103 or 107 when he's writing against a heresy to the Smyrnians, a letter that he writes. And so he's speaking to the Gnostics. The Gnostics are heretics of the time that think that you need to have a unique wisdom that only this select group of people would know to be able to achieve heaven, which is false. So Ignatius is writing to them, and one of the things that he says, they, the Gnostics, abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, in which the Father of his goodness raised up again. Those, therefore, who speak against the gift of God incur death in the midst of their disputes, but it were better for them to treat it with respect, that they also might rise again. It is fitting, therefore, that ye should keep aloof from such persons, and not to speak of them either in private or in public, but to give heed to the prophets, and above all, to the gospel, in which the passion of Christ has been revealed to us, and the resurrection has been fully proved, but avoid all divisions as the beginnings of evils. I shared with all of you not too long ago one of the most important aspects we have of the early Mass, the Apology of St. Justin Martyr. And we only just celebrated St. Justin this past week. He writes in chapter 66 of St. Justin's first Apology, one of the most important descriptions of what you would see here our Mass, the structure of our Mass. He writes this in about 150 to 155 A.D. And this food is called among us Eucharistia, the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true. He's talking about, in earlier in that document, he talks about the catechumenate. So catechumens these days are catechumens for about nine months. They enter the church in about September and learn and then are received into the church in, in Easter time. The catechumenate back in St. Justin's Day, two or three years. Two or three years of learning the faith before you can receive the Eucharist so you understand what you're receiving. So he says, And who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins? Again, another reference to baptism. And unto regeneration... And who is so living as Christ has enjoined? For not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, we have been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished is the flesh and the blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. Finally, St. Irenaeus says in 180 AD, then again, how can they say that the flesh, which is nourished with the body of the Lord, and with his blood goes to corruption and does not partake of life? Let them therefore either alter their opinion or cease from offering the things just mentioned. 
but our opinion is in accordance with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn establishes our opinion. For as the bread which is produced from the earth, when it receives the invocation of God, is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist. The invocation of God is that very moment that the priest makes the epiclesis, the moment that the, the hands come down above the gifts of the bread and the wine. That is the invocation that they're speaking about in that moment. Now, as we move on to these things, one of the things that's so important, it's what we call transubstantiation. It's that a substantial change actually happens to the matter of the bread and of the wine. That substantial change is no small thing. And remember, I challenge everybody with this thought. If it is difficult to believe that this bread and that this cruet of wine cannot be changed by the God of the universe, think again. Because the creator of all things, the creator of matter, the very building blocks of all creation, if God can create that, if an almighty God can create that, he can make something change substantially in its essence and still remain under the appearance of something else. Only the Lord himself can do that very thing. And so I was thinking about this, and I knew some more, more younger people would be at this Mass, and so I have here before me two eggs. So here's two eggs, and one of these has actually been substantially changed. And now, can anybody tell me which one of these is hard-boiled? Pretty tough one, right? <laughs> you know, it's one of these things. Now, remember, with any analogy that we ever give about God or about something as significant as the Eucharist, this does not suffice. Every analogy will, will eventually break down in the face of the reality of who God is and who his mysteries are. But this is something where we see, not something that we could visually see with our eye, but there is something, something substantial about the change that happened between these two eggs. But like I said, that silly little example absolutely pales in comparison to the reality of what the Eucharist is, something that can actually nourish our very soul. And we heard from those first readings today that it went from a history of sacrifice, from a bloody sacrifice to an unbloodied sacrifice in the blood of Jesus Christ into something that we can actually receive, that, that can actually nourish us. God continues to change these things through salvation history for our benefit. And so the Council of Trent, remember, a lot of people think that it was during the Council of Trent that we started believing in the real presence of the Eucharist, but we proved those false with many of those quotes from the early church fathers. It was just that they solidified it at that time, a belief that had been there always in the tradition of the church. But it says the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God that by the consecration of the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, like I said, is what we call transubstantiation. But the huge question for every single one of us 
in this church is that how do we get to know Jesus Christ substantially through this substantial change? We have to be the ones that are willing to change. We have to be the ones that are willing to alter our lives. Now, if you've ever been on a road trip with a friend or your family, you know like a lot of things go down on those road trips if you've driven a long time with a lot of people. And uh, my best friend Bobby is here today. And we spent a lot of time on the road. Now, in fact, one of our famous trips that we've taken multiple times was to the Outer Banks of North Carolina from the Dallas, Texas area. So this was after our senior year of high school. Our senior year of high school, no cell phones, just graduated from high school, and a road atlas. And our parents let us drive 26 hours to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Nowadays, I talk to parents, they're like, never in a million years would I let my child go on a trip like that, right? Now, it was a trip. You know, we got speeding tickets. We ran out of gas. We had to keep each other awake constantly. And we listened to countless hours of Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan songs. And we talked and we talked and we talked about life, about our lives, about our hopes, about our dreams. And it seems to me that we often get to know each other substantially on the way, on a journey through what I mentioned during our, our Mass at the Holy Trinity, through conversation and time with one another. Jesus already knows this about us. This is why he often talked about faith on the way. He does this all the time. And so we look back to those different moments where Jesus is walking with people. That great camping trip that we call the transubstantiation, that trip where he takes three of his most important apostles, and they're climbing up a mountain, they're hiking together, and they're getting to know each other on the way. And then at the apex of that trip, they actually see the Lord in his glory. He reveals something important to them because he's always revealing things to us over the course of time in our relationship with him. And one of the most important moments that is, especially for every one of us in this church today, is the road to Emmaus. Because as we see the nature of sacrifice change throughout salvation history, this is the most substantial change for every one of us at this moment. Jesus has already been crucified on the cross. He is risen from the dead, and he's appearing to those who believed in him. And then on that moment, he's on the way with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we remember from that story that they do not recognize him. They don't recognize him until when? That critical moment that it says they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. When he said the blessing and he broke the bread, it said their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then guess what happens? He disappears from their sight. This is the way that we receive our Lord Jesus Christ from the rest of salvation history until he comes again. He disappears from our sight, but leaves behind his very self in the Eucharist. And that's exactly what he does. He's handing this off because what happens very shortly after this particular story? He ascends into heaven, no longer with people as the walking, talking Jesus that journeyed with them. But 
It was in the body and blood of Christ. This is the food for the journey that was made real to those disciples on that day. And so, for all of you Lord of the Rings fans out there, there's an important element in Lord of the Rings because J.R.R. Tolkien was Catholic. And many of the elements in those books are very, very Catholic at their roots. And so you'll remember on that long journey of Frodo Baggins and his friends, they're given bread called lembas bread, made by the elves. And this literally means journey bread or way bread in the elven language. That was the language that Tolkien himself created because he was a linguist. And so the words he chose mattered. So the etymology of that word lembas is a reference to the Eucharist as viaticum. Viaticum itself contains the word via from the word way in Latin, and it ultimately means meal taken in preparation for a journey. It was used by Catholics, and it still is today, when you receive the Eucharist on your your, your deathbed. It is food for your ultimate journey until you meet Christ face to face. But the Lord's body and blood is not just food for us on our deathbed. It is food for us the moment we receive our first communion and so the moment that we die and meet the Lord in glory. Today, I will raise up the Lord's blood in a chalice that was a gift from me for my parents, a chalice that's well over 100 years old. Think about how many sacrifices of the Mass have been offered with that chalice made for one purpose, to hold our Lord's precious blood during a Mass. On the rim of that chalice, you'll notice blue enamel, and in Latin, the words inscribed, do this in remembrance of me. As I hold that chalice high for all of you to hear to see today, we commemorate our ancient Catholic faith, handed on to us by Jesus himself over 2,000 years ago. It's not always easy, to maintain our friendships that we even have on this earth with one another, let alone the supernatural friendship that we have with Christ in heaven. But I promise you, no moment of your life will ever be wasted on the moments you spend with our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. God bless you all.